Hey everybody, Dave Hodges here, host of the Common Sense Show. We are the show that is freeing America one enslaved mind at a time. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a terrific show for you today. We have Jim DiEugenio on, and uh, he is a uh, great expert on the Kennedy assassination. And you've heard my views here. I fear for people like Rod DeSantis, Donald Trump, uh, because if they can't discredit them politically or legally, then they always have the final option here. And I think that's a lesson uh, that's universal from the JFK days, how they do it, why they do it, what lessons can we learn, how did they cover it up, because if we understand this and we're better armed to, to confront uh, misinformation, I think we protect future presidents. Uh, but before we join Jim, uh, i got to take care of a little business here. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really concerned. Chicken farms burning down. 110 food processing plants destroyed since Biden's come into office. I'm concerned about the food supply. I'm concerned about the food supply chain, and I'm concerned about the availability of food. And uh, we see chicken shortages. I mean, we see everything across the board. Uh, a lot of people are saying pretty soon the only food you're going to see is what's in your home. I don't know how accurate that is, but I think the principle is generally true. So you really need to take a look at what My Patriot Supply offers, specials, quality product. I'm going to refer you to the website foodwithdave.com. And uh, make a wise choice, folks, because... Who knows how long we're going to have food availability. And if war breaks out for real in Ukraine, well, the government commandeers food, and that's always happened in times of war. One more thing, we um, are sponsored by a great water filtration system. The CIA just did a think tank with Newt Gingrich, James Woolsey, uh, other high-profile ex-administration officials, and they said that they believe an EMP attack on America is imminent. Those are their words, not mine. And you'll have to scavenge for water if that's the case. Do you have good water filtration system? Well, we do. The Alexa Pure Pro Water Filter, it's on sale. They haven't raised their prices. And you can read the research on how good it is at waterwithdave.com. Those are the sponsors for this show. Uh, Jim, I'm really glad you could join us. We had you over on the TV show sometime back, and the show was a big hit. And uh, I wanted to get your opinion on Tucker Carlson, who came out a couple of weeks ago and said, the CIA was responsible for the Kennedy assassination. From my perspective, I think they had a hand in it, but I don't think that they were necessarily acting alone. What's your perspective on what Tucker said? First of all, I was I, I, I couldn't believe it. All right. This is a guy, you know, with an audience of about 3.4 million people. And after all these years, I mean, what, 59 years? You know, somebody who has that kind of an audience has the guts to get on TV and make a statement like that. You know, Robert Kennedy Jr., I agree with Robert Kennedy Jr. That was one of the most courageous uh, broadcast media performances in history, you know, to, to, to say something like that to that big of an audience. And, you know, and to also add that, you know, ever since we've been living in a fake kind of backdrop, you know. So I, I, I give him all kinds of kudos for having the guts to go on TV and say something as powerful, you know, and as resounding as that. All right. Now, you know, it's uh, it, the, the operation to uh, get rid of Kennedy literally, um, 
in in our film JFK Revisited, um, we in the in the long version JFK Destiny Betrayed, we tried to put together what we thought was a uh, a tripartite kind of conspiracy, you know, in which the CIA, the Pentagon, and organized crime. That's that's the vague outline of what of, of what we tried to do. All right. And um and so yes, I I don't think it was a pure CIA operation. I think I think they had a couple of very uh powerful allies in in, in going ahead and completing you know whatever you think of uh of uh, of of these guys you know they they sure as heck pulled off you know a very powerful and a very uh secret operation and they got away with it you know so as 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 i've often said as much as i uh as much as i don't like them i sure as heck respect their brains because they, you know, they they did get away with the crime of the century. Yeah, exactly. All right. You, you, you know, know, you're right about the CIA involvement to some level, though, because you look at Alan Dulles, fired head of the CIA, controversial removal, and then he's he's connected to the Warren Commission. Uh, so you look at that and you say, well, if they're putting Kennedy's enemies on the Warren Commission, you know, how truthful can this investigation even be? Right. And, and by the way, Dave, uh, he... Not only was on the Warren Commission, uh, he was the single most active member of the Warren Commission because he was the only one who didn't have a day job. Yeah, good point. Um, but he was frequently a spokesperson. I've, I've concluded that from watching the news clips of the day, and then when the Warren Commission was out, he would he was doing a lot of interviews on his own about the progress of the commission's investigation. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so, you know, and, and I've never trusted him. I've often said that the deep state was born to a large extent with the NSA came into being and the OSS became the CIA and their coming out party was the Kennedy assassination. I don't know how you view that, but that's how I've tended to look at it. I thought this was a classic deep state operation. See, that's a very interesting comment, Dave, because... What a, a lot of people who have studied this thing uh, have have concluded that the Kennedy assassination was the first time that America saw whatever you want to call it, you know, the shadow government, you know, the deep state, okay, um, the secret hierarchy, whatever. That was the first time that was really exposed to people who were really in the know and interested in what the heck happened to JFK, you know. And 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 like you said, it's it's the visible government versus the invisible government, you know, or whatever you want to call it. The deep state has become a popular term, you know. And and this is the first time that it really exploded into the consciousness of America. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it just and, – and the cover-up continues. I mean, if you look at Trump dropped the ball on uh, 
disclosure of FBI, FBI or CIA files about Kennedy that were supposed to have been released by law in 2017, and then Biden just did the same thing. What do you think they're hiding? You know, that's, that, that is a heck of an interesting question, you know, because I think a, a, a good a good backdrop to understanding this defiance is to, is to simply say this. This was all supposed to be taken care of in 2017. By law, every last document was supposed to be open and declassified by 2017. And it says that right in the JFK Collections Act, all right? that everything was supposed to be declassified by the end of 2017. We're in 2023, and everything is still not declassified. And we and, and people in the know have had to file a lawsuit against Biden and the National Archives about this. Now, I'm sure you're aware that um, when Judge Napolitano, who used to have a show on Fox, asked Trump about this, all right. Well, why, why did you why did you back out of declassifying everything? He said words of the effect, Judge, if you would have seen what I saw, you would have done the same thing. All right, which sort of coincides with Tucker Carlson's source, okay, who, who said there a very similar thing. Now, now with with Biden, there to alert your readers, there's a lawsuit filed in North in the North Carolina district, excuse me, Northern California district, uh, by the Mary Farrell Foundation, which is probably the the largest private um, depository of declassified documents on the JFK case. And they've sued <clears throat> both Biden and the National Archives on just this ground, that they're in defiance. And... and, and let me explain why this is so egregious. See, if in 2017 the president still thought that there were certain documents that should not be declassified, he had to write an explanation for each document as to why he was not going to let it go. Because he was the only guy who could stop it at that time. Well, neither Trump nor Biden did that. If you, I'm, let me say that again. Neither Trump nor Biden did that. <clears throat> That's where the defiance of the law is, you know. So there was this lawsuit filed, and now Biden has moved to dismiss the lawsuit by saying words of the effect that. The president has the power to go ahead and refuse declassification, okay, which is which is not true, which is not true. So the, I think the logical conclusion, Dave, is if you're going to go to these kinds of extremes, it sure as heck looks like there must be something in there that they really don't want to let go. You know, I mean, is, isn't that what the law, is that what you think? It's exactly you know? what I think. Um, they're, they're, well, I think Tucker's on the money, but he was nonspecific, and I think there's only so far they allowed him to go. But I think that uh, clearly they're protecting CIA interests. 
You know, one of the things I wonder, and, and I'm so glad you're here to answer my suspicion, I've always felt, you know, because of the Mafia's longtime association with the CIA, starting with protecting the docks in World War II from German saboteurs, continuing on to the attempted assassination of Castro and Operation Mongoose, I've often thought, they say it was a Mafia-CIA plot, I've heard, but I think it even goes further. I think it was American CIA that brought in foreign assassins, and at least I wonder that. Uh, how do you view this in terms of CIA mafia involvement? Well, you know that is that is a long-standing uh, theorem as to solving the Kennedy assassination because you have Lee Harvey Oswald on the one hand, who Senator Schweiker on the Church Committee said, everywhere you look. This guy has the fingerprints of intelligence around him. And then you have Jack Ruby, who, from his early days in Chicago, all right, appears to have organized crime connections. So right, you put those two together, all right, and you have a CIA uh, mafia nexus. And I'm sure you're aware that... Uh, Jack Ruby, his idol was a guy named Louis McWilly, yeah. who was a who was who worked in Cuba under Traficante. You know when when the mob had those big casinos down there, all right. And then there's also the report that Ruby was actually visited Traficante when he was in detention after Castro overthrew the regime down there, all right. So I, I I think that there's, you know, you can look at this something like once Oswald was not killed on the day of the assassination, which a lot of people think he was supposed to be, you know, at the, at the Texas theater, all right, that the CIA decided to call in some chips, okay, with their old ally, uh, you know, uh, the mob. And said, you know, look, we got to get rid of this guy. Okay, we need some help. All right. And so, you know, either McQuilly or somebody like that got the word to Ruby. And then Ruby, see, there's there's no doubt Ruby was stalking Oswald from the night of the assassination onward. All right. I'm sure you're aware of that. Friday night, uh, Saturday, and then Sunday morning. All right. And then in that almost surreal I don't know if you were around back then, but I actually saw it live, you know, when, when Ruby steps out of that crowd and shoots Oswald, you know, in that awful grimace on Oswald's face before he collapses to the floor, you know, that, that had to be one of the most shocking, you know, sequences ever recorded on film. I remember jumping up in the air saying something like, oh, my God, they shot him, you know, <clears throat> And then who visits Ruby in jail? You know, Campisi, the guy. <laughs> you know, the the guy who owns that restaurant with all the where all the mobsters who visit in the Dallas area. You know. I know. I, it's just. But you asked me what they were covering up. I think that's part of it. I, I I think that they don't want you to go down the CIA rabbit hole. They don't want to see that the CIA works with the mafia. That would be my suspicion for covering it up. I would be a pretty good reason to cover it up. And and we've already linked this in. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, too, I mean, you have Jack Ruby, who's a known pimp, drug dealer, 
topless bar owner, um, and, and he's out of the Chicago Mafia originally, and he gets into a highly secured area with the accused assassin of the president. Who are they keeping out? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, well, see, that this is one of the things that has really kind of unraveled in the last few years, um, that clearly Ruby had help in getting in that basement, you know, of the, of the Dallas headquarters. And there is this, I don't know if you've seen this series. It's, it's on YouTube. It's called Evidence of Revision, where this guy got this most incredible footage I think I've ever seen. Things that you don't see on television. And it's very clear that right before Ruby steps forward to go ahead and polish off Oswald, that he's standing behind Blackie Harrison, who is one of the, the, the detectives on the Dallas police force. He's concealing himself. Harrison's a real big guy, okay, before he steps out and shoots Oswald. You know, Oswald... And, you know, there's some people who believe that there was a stare of recognition, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that the Warren Commission lied about how Ruby got into that Dallas police headquarters. He did not come down the main street ramp. All right. And there was a witness that the House Select Committee had that surfaced in about 1977, a guy named Don Flush. He said, I parked my car right across the street because I wanted to see the transfer. And I was leaning up against the car. I had it parked caddy corner. He goes, I knew Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby did not come down that mainstream ramp that, that, that morning, because I, I would have seen him. All right. Somebody helped Ruby get into the back door, and then he hid behind Blackie Harrison, and then he stepped forward and he shot Oswald. All right. That was a, that's how that happened, you know. And so this is why, as everybody says, you, you know, anybody who studies this case, Ruby was the perfect guy to go ahead and answer the call because he had all these ties in with the Dallas police. You know, they used to go to his clubs, you know, and, and he used to return favors for them, you know, plying the police so they he wouldn't get busted. Yeah, I think, I think you're right on the money with this but but the cover-up continues and and like i said since everyone is dead i think we're on the money here because this can only be described as an institutional cover-up since everyone's dead and um you know and when you see too like like pfizer in in the vaccine stuff clinical trial failures can't be released they want for 75 years you see the same nonsense in the Kennedy assassination. It's what they don't want you to know is what they delay for years. And, and you'll wonder 100 years from now, will they still be holding on to this information if America's still a nation? You know, that's, that's really, this is really one of the most puzzling aspects. You know, because here we are, Dave. We're coming up onto the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So we're at 59 years now. And still, still, the government will not let go of the last of these documents, you know. And, you know, it, it, it really makes you wonder, you know, um, what could possibly be the reason for this? And and it, and it, it really pains me 
because, you know, this whole idea of a democracy is that the people have to have the right information in order to make up their minds about how they want to vote, all right? And also, the other thing is, if you don't know your true history, then how can you figure out the present? You know, I mean, it's just only a natural kind of progression. You know, people want to know what happened. You know, they most of the public wants to know the whole truth about these things. You know, but and what happens? The government, which is supposed to be the transmitter of fact, all right, will somehow not let go of these last documents about the JFK case. And it creates it creates, you know, as like Mark Lane and Jim Garrison said, you know, it creates a natural cynicism about the whole process of their government. And it, it it and this is one of the reasons why the belief in government has dropped ever since 1964. Yeah. That was the first time that it had dr- precipitously dropped as far as they're keeping these polls. And it hasn't been the same since, all right? In 1964, the year the Warren Commission was issued, all right, it began to collapse all right, it went from about 75% when JFK was inaugurated, that is, people who believed in what their government was saying, to the point is today that it's in the 20s. I know. And, and let me add, the belief in the MSM is at about the same level. Well, do you think that the uh, mainstream media in the 60s was a tool for cover-up as well? Yeah, see, the thing is, the thing is, since they had more or less gone gone along with the Warren Commission, all right, they had more or less tied themselves to this false story, all right? And the last thing in the world they were going to admit is that we were bamboozled by these guys, all right? And if you remember, back in 1967 when CBS had that extraordinary four-part series on the Warren Report, reported by Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather. John McCloy, who was one of the Warren commissioners, was on that show. But what they didn't tell you, and in fact, they didn't want to tell you, even when they were confronted with the facts, is that John McCloy was a secret consultant on that program. He wrote nine long memoranda, all right, in which he essentially spelled out, you know, this is what you should be presenting about Lee Harvey Oswald, all right? And that was not uncovered. They did not admit to it until about 19, I believe, 1992, okay, where they were confronted with the evidence, um, you know, that, that McCloy was a consultant on the show, all right? And that's just one example. And NBC wrote to the FBI saying, we we're going to do a special on the JFK case, but we want your input on it. Look, what kind of media do we have 
when they work with people who are directly involved with the cover-up of the JFK assassination. Right. It's really it's really sickening to even think of it that way. <clears throat> I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and again, we go back to people think that the media is a recent phenomenon. You know, the only thing I would say about media being tainted today as being a recent phenomenon is back in the 60s, you basically had about 150 corporations that controlled 98% of the mainstream media. Today it's six, and that's taught, that's yes. taught in every journalism school now. Uh, yes. So to me, it's much easier to control the flow of information. The only thing that's different today, though, is everyone can be a journalist because of the electronic media. Right. And and you know something? That's, that's actually a really good thing uh, because uh, what this has allowed, of course is for an alternative uh, to the MSM, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, the, the mainstream media is now being challenged by this kind of new generation of, 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 of reporting and writing. And thank God, oh my God, thank God for that, you know, really. Because like you just said, it's down to six corporations that run the MSM these days. And it, it's become, you know, uh, I believe, a, a really, really serious problem, you know. And, and, and I'm, I'm very, very glad, you know, that this alternative media has grown up in the shadow. Because if, if, you, if you look back to 1964, there really wasn't any kind of a serious challenge to what p people like – well, let's put it this way. Let me ask you this. How the heck did CBS turn out a special on the Warren Commission on the day that the Warren Report was issued? Yeah, their timing stinks. The, the, the cover-up <laughs> isn't even good. <laughs> I know. Doesn't that tell you something? No. Doesn't that tell you they were working hand-in-glove <clears throat> with the Warren Commission? In order to get it out there and to get the whole propaganda, you know, in full, a two-hour special? Yeah, look, I, Dave, know, Dave, I know. Dave, just let me ask you this. The Warren Report is 888 pages long. How can anybody read 888 pages in one day? All right? <laughs> well, you know what it reminds me of? And Oliver Stone did a magnificent job covering this so subtly in his movie, JFK, where facts about the assassination uh, were printed in an Australian newspaper before the facts were known. Right, right, exactly. You know, and this course tells you, you know, somebody was leaking and somebody was accepting the leaks, all right, in order to get that story out there, you know. And by the way, it wasn't just, it wasn't just CBS. CBS had a two-hour show that night. I believe NBC had a one-hour show on the night. I mean, I, when, when you really think of it, I mean, what kind of news media does something like that? You know, they get, they get this whole propagandized one report out to millions of people without even examining it, without analyzing it. You know, because let me tell you the second part of that story. See... The Warren Report came out in late September of 1964, the 888-page summary. But the 26 volumes upon which 
that summary is based, that did not come out until November. So in other words, you could not compare the summary report with the evidence until two months later. But here's these guys putting out the summary report to millions of people without even breaking it down. It is an indictment of the integrity of the of the media. There's no question. Uh, you know, I, I want to give you a quote and then ask you a question from it. And it's actually a paraphrase of a quote. But the renowned forensic uh, pathologist Cyril Wecht, who I have a great deal of respect for, he risked his reputation to speak the truth about the Kennedy assassination. And he came out and said this was a coup d'etat. And he said, we can't have coup d'etats and have a republic form of democracy because basically he was saying that the people's right to vote has been taken away by this small group of assassins. Um, so along those lines, I want to take this into the present time. Um, when Trump was running for president and talking anti-China, uh, anti-internationalism, pro-America, I was concerned for his safety as he grew in momentum. Um, do you think that the Kennedy assassination can serve as like an antidote to people's ignorance that they would accept this again and, and this helps protect uh, uh, present and future presidents? I, I Well, yeah. I, I, if you examine the, um, the JFK case, and then if you examine the, the following cases that came, you know, with, with King and RFK, you know, I, I believe that that should shine like a beacon into the contemporary history of the United States. And what these guys do is they live in the shadow of, of what happened. And, and make no mistake about it, these guys know. They know what happened. And they know how far they can go. All right? And uh, to give you an example... Um, there was a guy who worked for Barack Obama in his first administration and stayed on until his second administration. And uh, finally, he said after about the fifth year, he said words to the effect, what happened to the hope and change? You know, because that's what he was running on the first time. And Obama said, you saw what happened to JFK, didn't you? you know, so that's, this is what I mean. These guys know. Okay, what what you know what can happen, you know, and uh, same thing with. Um, <clears throat> let me give you a story about Al Gore. When he was uh, coming up in 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 Congress, uh, a friend of his from Tennessee, he was from Tennessee at the time also, told him, "Do me a favor, Al. Before you leave on Friday, come over to my archive." and read a few documents that I'll have for you. It'll only take you about an hour or so, okay, before you go back. It's about the JFK case. And so Gore agreed to do it. And so every Friday he'd go over to the archive, read these several documents, then go to the airport and leave. And after about a year, Gore said, his, this guy's name was Bernie, Bernie Fensterwald. He said, you're right, it was a conspiracy. So that's what I mean. See, these guys know, you know, what what happened, you know, and they and and this has cast a pall over just how far they can go, you know. 
uh, living, you know, in this the shadow of this gallows, so to speak. I don't think that's too dramatic either. That's not a very that's, I don't think that's a very dramatic, you know, comparison. I I think that's actually accurate. No, but the here's another thing that bothered me, and I know I'm kind of going far afield here, but I know that when um, Bill Clinton got into office, he was really curious about two things, and this is well documented: UFOs and uh, who killed Kennedy and why. And he put his friend Vince Foster on both topics, and Foster died under very mysterious circumstances. Have you ever looked at that as a connection? No, no, it, it wasn't. It wasn't Foster. It was um, what's his name? Webb Hubble. It was it, it, it was Hubble that he put on that. And and we know what happened to Hubble, right? He got busted. He ended up he ended, he ended up going to prison. Yeah, yeah, I know. All right, but, but I was told that Vince Foster was also charged with doing this. I know about Hubble, but uh, this is why Hillary was instructed to take the Foster files and put it in her own files so they couldn't be touched as part of the uh, investigation. Well, the, the, the story I heard that it, it, it was Webb Hubble, okay, who, who was supposed to have done it, you know. But, but you know, the, the, think, the think of what you just said there, you know, that's interesting because if you recall, when they were running um, Clinton and Gore, were asked this question, all right, because it was 92, and, and, and JFK had come out in 91. And then they both, uh, they both said that they thought that it was, there was some real serious problems and with the case, and it was, a, it was probably a plot. Then what happens when Gerald Posner's book comes out in 1993? Yeah, I know. When Clinton does a 180, and he's... <laughs> And he says, well, I was reading this very convincing book <laughs> called Case Closed by Gerald Posner. And I think that's per pretty much it. You know, so he just did a complete flip. Uh, I, you know, know. I know. Within a space of a year. Yeah, just for the audience's benefit, uh, Posner went against the stream of the day and said there was no conspiracy in killing Kennedy. Right. Lee Oswald, Case Closed. Uh, yes. Timing problem and, and magic bullet notwithstanding. <laughs> And if you remember, that book got the most unbelievable publicity tour, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that I can remember. You know, I mean, the guy was everywhere for about six months. The guy was everywhere you look. You know, I look at that as the establishment, you know, what, what, what's the term? The Empire Strikes Back. Well, that, that Gerald Posner was the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he had the mainstream media in his in his hip pocket. You know, Jim, you're you're one of the few guys left that really understand this. Uh and I and I hold you in the highest respect because every time I turn on something meaningful worth watching about Kennedy, you seem to have your name associated with it. So I wanted to ask you, um, how far did the conspiracy go in, in your estimation? Okay. Well that's that's a that's a nice question. You know, which, which if you can believe it, I don't get it very often, okay, um, for whatever reason. Uh, in, in my opinion, in my opinion, and I'm going to label this as that because this is something you can't really know because there's never really been a real investigation of the JFK case. Um, in my opinion, there was an operational level, okay, which – you had people at the top of that operational level. I would think be somebody from the CIA, 
somebody from the Pentagon, and then they brought in somebody from organized crime. But in I do not think that the plot would have ever been originated on that operational level if they had not gotten an approval from the outside the government guys. You know, the the guys, you know, the what they used to call back then the Eastern Establishment mm-hmm. or or what I think C. Wright Mills called it the the power elite. Yeah. Let, you know? let me just interject something here. Um, I'm deciding how coy to be. Uh, how about the owner of uh, Chrysler Corporation? Uh, they got 90% of defense contracts for Vietnam that Kennedy was opposed to. The owner of Bell Helicopter, who happened to be the same person, and we know the role they played in Vietnam. And then, of course, the Federal Reserve and the uh, silver certificates. And you know, Without going into too much detail, when you say the Eastern Establishment, I can't get beyond the name Rockefeller. And if he didn't give the order, maybe someone in his organization did. But I've said this, the day that Kennedy was t- killed, uh, Rockefellers won the world's biggest lottery. Yeah, Yes, I, and, and I agree with that. And you probably know there was no love loss between JFK and the Rockefeller yeah. clan. Yep. Okay, there was, you know, that, that's kind of an understatement. Yes. All right. Uh, and in fact, they had an exchange of letters in, I believe, 1962 about their opposing views of both the American economy and the world economy, because it, to put this in a nutshell, see the the Rockefellers, although they were extraordinarily wealthy on the domestic front, they were really very very involved with this whole colonial situation, because they had holdings in the Far East, you know, in uh, in Africa, in South America, and you know, just about every part of the globe. And Kennedy, when Kennedy came in, uh, he was an anti-colonialist, okay? He was a nationalist, all right? And when I say he was a nationalist, he wasn't just a nationalist for the United States, but he wanted to see these, these nascent countries in the developing world. He wanted to see them set free to develop their own resources and this of course was anathema to somebody like david rockefeller mm-hmm. who was making hundreds of millions of dollars off of places like indonesia to have just one example you know and of course a lot in south america so they had an opposing view and i guess what you could call that back then which we didn't call it until you know this whole globalist view this whole one world kind of view of uh, of American domination throughout the world, and so he and Ro- he, Kennedy and Rockefeller did not see this situation uh, this in in the same way. And I believe that that difference was not you couldn't compromise it. It was irreconcilable, you know. And that's that's why I believe. And again, I'm labeling this a speculation. I believe that somebody like Rockefeller was one of the guys who who ended up giving the green light to somebody like, say, for example, Alan Dulles or someone like that. Exactly. And I wonder, too, was Curtis LeMay really in de facto charge of the Secret Service? And the reason I ask, 
Kennedy's the lead car. There's open windows in Dealey Plaza. The car is going 14 miles an hour in front of the book depository. Um, all Secret Service violations. Um, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> you know, that, that is a great question. You know, that's a really, really good question. Because if you take a look at all the violations of what was supposed to be standard operating procedure, it's appalling. It's really, really mind-boggling, you know? I mean, you have this, for example, and I'm sure you and most of your listeners are aware of it. Who the hell ever thought of taking first a 180-degree turn at Maine and Houston, then one block later, an even more extreme turn, you know, from Houston down Elm Street? So the car has to slow down to something like 10 miles an hour. And, and, and multiplying that is the fact you've got these open windows on both sides, the Dow Tex building and the school book depository. Then you have this, this white picket fence <laughs> in front of Kennedy with a parking lot behind it. I mean, really, what the heck is going on? You know, this is really in, in, incredible. It, I, it, it was actually Douglas Dillon, I think. Uh, there was James Rowley, who was in charge of the Secret Service, but the titular head was the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Douglas Dillon. And and you're, you're and the 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 fact the fact that this was not called out, the fact that these guys were not fired, you know, it tells you just how deep the cover up was. And then and I don't have to tell you this, but there were those, what, 12 or 13 guys at that bar till three o'clock in the morning drinking uh, pure alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, yeah, illegal. I think I think it's called the cellar was the name mm -hmm. of it. Yep. You know, I mean, and they don't get in, you know, until the wee hours of the morning. And then they had a 730 call the next day. I mean, that's just preposterous. Yeah, I know, to all violations. The other thing I was wondering, too, and, and I'll set it up this way. My uncle didn't get the published um, word in the paper about the change of the motorcade, and he had a tool and die shop at the time um, on uh, Main Street, which the president's motorcade was originally supposed to go down, and he'd been going, what, 35, 40 miles an hour. And so my uncle always felt bad about this. He calls my aunt and says, where the hell is Kennedy? He's supposed to have been here by now. Did, I wonder if someone shot the SOB because he didn't like him. And he always felt bad about saying that. My aunt said, you didn't hear? The president's been shot. And, uh, wow. and so here's, here's what I'm leading back to. Was there a connection in the Dallas Police Department with fired uh, director or deputy directors of the CIA uh, with Cavill um, to change that parade route and then do the unthinkable, which was to publish it in the paper? Um, so, you know, just give a roadmap to the assassins and where he's going to be. Um, what's your view on that, of that change of the route that took place? Well, there's a, there's one layer to that. And then there's a lower layer to that. The upper layer is that, uh, the mayor of the city, Earl Cabell was the brother of Charles Cabell. Charles Cabell was a deputy director of the CIA mm -hmm. in 1961 who was fired by Kennedy over the Bay of Pigs in, in the fall of 1961. 
it turns out, if you can believe this, we did not know that his brother was a CIA asset until the new millennium. That didn't come out yeah. until the new millennium. You know, that's to me that that was shocking that they kept that covered up for all those years. Now, as far as the change in the route, that took place the night before, the night before. Uh, and there's a very good researcher named Vince Palomera who studies the Secret Service, and he uncovered the fact that they the the local police were instructed of this. And they went on the new route the night before uh, Kennedy arrived. All right. Now, th this whole thing smells the high heaven because you did not have to take that dog leg. OK, it was not necessary to get to the trademark. And the House Select Committee on Assassinations found this out, uh, you know, in in the 70s. In the 70s, yeah. That's the yeah. emphasis right. in the 70s. Right. Yeah, that's why I always thought the changing of the parade route was an essential component of the assassination, and uh, there, it was an inside job. Yes, it's, it's, it's well, if you take, if you, take, you know, I've, I've gone to Dallas and I've been to Dealey Plaza several times, you know, and, and if you go ahead and if you look at the whole Dealey Plaza thing from the, that overhead trestle, you know, in which those three streets empty into. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, if, if you were if you were an assassination planner, you could hardly think of having a better scenario than what is laid out before you. You know, and so how this ever got approved, you know, uh, you know, is, is one of the big mysteries, you know, that, that has never really truly been solved. You know, and, and, and it's it's really a shame, you know, that it hasn't been. Because this is one of the things, any investigator, any real investigator, this is one of the top ten things that they would have put on their to-do list, okay? How the heck did that route ever get approved, and who did it? Yeah, I, I've heard everything, and I can't confirm this, but General LeMay was mentioned um, the head of the Secret Service was mentioned. I don't know the answer to that, but to me, that's the central component because when Kennedy went into Dealey Plaza, he, he was like a duck in the proverbial bathtub. Um, yeah. He had no chance of getting out of there alive. Right. And, uh, do, do you think there was triangulation in the fire? Were, were there three teams, in your opinion? Yes, that, that was, uh, you know, if <clears throat> it's called what they, in, in the trade, it's called an L-shaped ambush in which you have like an upside down L, okay, and you have one hit team, you know, on on the, on that one extreme corner. You have one hit team at the corner of where the one line in the L meets the other one, okay, and then at the top, you have a third team, okay, and, and, and that's the way, and if you can believe it, because I've talked to people in, in this field, that's the way it's actually taught. Okay. <laughs> that that's like the dream scenario. Okay, if you can put together a three-man hit team spaced out like that, because there's the thing is there's no escape. You can't escape something like that. One of these guys is going to get you. Yeah, I know. And, and and the thing is, is Dallas should have been considered to be a hostile city because Adlai Stevenson got attacked and chased down the street. 
uh, a couple right, weeks yeah, before. That's another thing. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a month earlier. Yeah. That was a month earlier. Adlai Stevenson was like jeered and spat upon, you know, when he visited Dallas. And then there's that guy, Mr. Dealey, who I think ran the local newspaper, who had that meeting with Kennedy, you know, and basically kind of insulted him, you know, you know, saying, you know something, Mr. Kennedy, America needs a man on a white horse and you just aren't that guy. Can you imagine saying something like that to the president of the United States, yeah. you know, right in front of him? Okay. You know, and so, yeah, it, it, it should have been considered a hostile area. And for that reason, the security should have been increased, not decreased. Yeah, I totally agree. And was, the central theme there was civil rights. Um, yeah, that, that, that was one of the problems, yes. Yeah, and, and Kennedy was visiting a southern city in the civil rights era, and he was trying to champion <laughs> civil rights without much success, and he was getting a lot of resistance. And this is why I always wondered why he was the lead car, why there weren't Secret Service agents on the sides of each car uh, to protect him. And and the, the excuse you hear from the established media is, well, Kennedy ordered it not to happen. I'm thinking that's not the way it works. If there are Secret Service rules, the, the president has to obey the Secret Service. That 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 that's correct. You know, this of course, as as I'm sure you can imagine, the the Secret Service understood they had fallen down on the job, to put it mildly, and so they began to make all these excuses. Well, it wasn't really us. It was really this guy. It wasn't really us. The president wanted. That isn't the way it no, worked. No, not at all. Okay. You know, no, no, you're, you're exactly right about that. And and to make up for their own failures, they began to blame the victim. There you go. And one other thing, too, my dad, and he did a lot of, um, shall we say, highly classified projects for the military. Um, so he had a little experience in the drama, uh, not with Kennedy directly, but he understood how things worked. And uh, we were watching The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, and I was just a kid, up late watching the show with my dad, and this guy came on with a, a voice that was changed, and they blacked out his face, and he said, the person who killed John Kennedy or the people also killed Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and and my dad shut it off, and he says, what do you think? I said, I have no idea, and he said, well, all of them, all the assassins had in a diary that said what they were going to do. Uh, they were acted alone. And he said the three major assassinations of the 60s and the 20th century, for that matter, there's no way they could have all these things in common and not be connected. What do you think about that? <laughs> that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, one night, Truman Capote went on the Johnny Carson show. I think it was in 1968 after Bobby Kennedy was killed. All right. And he says, isn't it really strange about all these alleged assassins? how they all keep these wonderfully poetic diaries. And he goes to Johnny, he says, John, I'm a writer. I don't keep a diary. You know, but these guys like Lee R.V. Oswald, you know, uh, and, 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 and Sirhan, and they all, they all keep diaries, okay? You know, of, of what they're going to do. Of what, you know, and, and, and right there, uh, I remember that show. I remember thinking that was the first time I ever said, wow, maybe these things are all connected, you know. Um, well, they all had one thing in common. 
uh, civil rights, uh, two things, civil rights in Vietnam. Yes, yes. And and see, those those are two of the big, see, I'm old enough to remember, you know, most of your audience probably isn't it, but I'm old enough to remember. Those were the two big stories back in that decade. It was Kennedy trying to break the back of Jim Crow in the South, and it was Kennedy not committing to Vietnam. And then suddenly, suddenly, like overnight, and I'm not exaggerating, it seemed to happen in a thunderclap, you know, that suddenly we're going into Vietnam, you know, and, and we're going in in a big way, yeah. you know, and, and, and all of a sudden you hear all this, oh, my God, uh, 300 body count this week, 400 body count the next week. You know, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And as far as civil rights go, see, what most people don't understand is that nobody really tried to act on civil rights, you know, prior to JFK. You know, I mean, as as much as uh, people admire people like Eisenhower and Truman and FDR, there was very, very, very little progress made. You know, because you had, um, you know, I'm sure you remember this. You had this Southern filibuster. And these guys from the South, you know, in the Senate would filibuster any kind of civil rights bill to death. You know, and I'm not exaggerating at all. Oh, you're right. I've read the historical accounts. We're we're almost out of time. And a couple things, just one for future reference. Uh, We don't have time to get into it today, but do you have an opinion on the identities in affiliations of the actual assassins? No, Okay. I don't. Okay. Um, uh, I, I think we've established some institutionality of it, though. Okay, and then you've written a really good book, JFK Revisited, and there's a film series on this, too. Can you tell the audience about that? Yeah, sure. I, I was a screenwriter for... And I'm sorry, uh, the two and we only got about a minute. I apologize. Okay, the, the two films, JFK Revisited... JFK Destiny Betrayed, the book JFK Revisited, which you can get online at Amazon, Abbey Books, Barnes & Noble, that has the two screenplays that are annotated, plus it has many interviews that we didn't have enough time to insert in the film. It's a very enlightening, I believe, and educational experience to read the book. Yeah, the, the, the work you have done on this is uh, virtually unparalleled and uh, we need to keep this alive because I really do believe in what I said earlier we're keeping uh, present future presidents alive by making people hesitate because we have more of an aware public now Uh, and I want to thank you for coming on we're going to have you back on because you're just uh, too good of a resource and this is too important of a topic not to keep alive for the American people and Jim thank you so much for joining us you're welcome Dave it was my pleasure bye bye